Well, like I mentioned, tonight's subject is going to be Christ's wrath, and um, I'm sure most of the folks here have heard of the book, The Shack, right, written uh, by uh, William Young, and um, The Shack and also The Bible Project, as I'm sure folks here have heard of The Bible Project as well. It's a very popular uh, video series that's out, I think you can pick it up on YouTube, and uh, they have something in common, the two of them, the Shack and, and the Bible Project. They're both, again, uh, best-selling, um, a lot of views for the Bible Project. Their podcasts are visited a lot. And, of course, uh, William Young's uh, book, the, the Shack, is an all-time uh, best-seller uh, list. But one thing those two have in common, besides being extremely, extremely popular, is that they both deny and, and dare I say, even attack the biblical doctrine of propitiation or penal substitutionary atonement, work of Christ. Both of these popular works attack that. And uh, it's in part because how the wrath of God is looked at by them. Tim Mackey, the, the main teacher of the Bible Project, says that the wrath of God has nothing to do with atonement. He's actually written that. And, and uh, for those of you who have seen some of those Bible projects, a lot of them are very attractive, so they become popular. But in with the popularity comes also this attack. Now, many liberal theologians have taught against the idea of the wrath of God needing appeasement. They, like the men I just mentioned, they use terms to draw away from the attributes of God, in particular God's holiness, and uh, they create a caricature of who God is and the work of Christ, especially the substitutionary atoning work on the cross. Now, again, why is this? Why is such a thing promoted? And this, you know, looking into this in recent weeks, I, I realize this is a lot more popular than I thought it was. But why is this, um, this thought developing out there? And I think in part is what I mentioned. It's a, it's a deviating away from the perfections or the attributes of God. And because of that, the wrath of God is construed to make God into something that he is not. A, a terms used are a cosmic monster or a, um, uh, a heavenly, excuse me, a heavenly monster or a cosmic child abuse, as they put the, the work of, of uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Tim Mackey even said this. He presented this character, caricature. He says, God's up in heaven. He's holy, but he's really mad, and he, he's going to take his anger out on somebody. He needs his pound of flesh. So he decides to put it on his son. So all those who trust in this, believe in the son, could go to heaven and sing their praises to this God who didn't kill him. And, you know, leaving out, he says this is a character. Oh, yeah, it's a caricature, all right. You know, you go to Cedar Point, you see an artist do a caricature, you can usually say, oh, yeah, that's that person. That caricature he drew is nowhere and resembles at all the loving work of Christ. Mackey even goes on to say the idea of propitiatory work of Christ is totally a perversion of the character of God. This is the type of attack out there. Now listen to uh, the start of Mark Jones' book and see how contrary a biblical view of the wrath. Again, these men struggle with that penal substitutionary atonement of work of Christ because of their distortion or their view. Uh, they're, they're just not even able to comprehend God being wrathful. The very 
Uh, the very first verses uh, starting in this chapter is out of uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Let me read those. Then I saw heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name of which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, will following him on white horses. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which with, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What a description of Christ. The first, pair, the first line that Jones writes here, No one knows the wrath of God like the Son of God. After all, the Lamb of God was roasted in the fire of God's wrath. He was in the fiery furnace during the three hours of darkness at Golgotha. God's people, as a result, have Christ's garments upon them. As Thomas Watson observed of, the, of such a, a tested attire, the fire of hell can never singe this garment. Now that's some opening chapter, quite a contrast to what is promoted in, in the book, The Shack, and The Bible Project, and many others too. The fires of hell will never singe this garment. What a statement. Now what's the implications? First of all, it's that those who are not clothed in Christ's garment will indeed experience the singe of eternal fire. The second part is, is that we read is that Christ, who experienced the wrath of God, is the one who ex- will execute this wrath on the ungodly. Those who want to change the image of Christ into something other than what Scripture portrays him have to ignore the very Scriptures that speak of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, we could just we don't have to be living it to the book of Revelation to see the wrath of Christ. In the Old Testament, we read of the revelation of who Christ is there. In, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 15 and 16, we read that the angel of the Lord was sent to bring destruction to Jerusalem. God set a limit on how far that destruction was to be done. In verse 16 of that chapter, we read David seeing the angel standing between heaven and earth. I mean, what a picture that is in and of itself of Christ. David sees this angel with a sword in his hand. Then it says this in verse 16. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched over Jerusalem. Now, what was David's reaction to seeing this sight of this angel of the Lord with with the, the, the sword in his hand. Well, uh, when fear grips our heart, what's the natural instinct that kicks in for us? We want to run, don't we? But what do you do when there's no escape? David, that mighty warrior, killed a, killed a lion. He, he killed a bear. He, I mean, excuse me, that was, that was Daniel Boone. Killed a lion, killed, uh, struck down uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Goliath. I mean, that mighty warrior who, who, remember the song they sang, Saul, Saul, killed his thousands, David, David, his tens of thousands. When you think 
The only thing that David fled for his life was from King Saul, because Saul was the Lord's anointed, and David didn't want to touch him. And then he ran from Absalom. And I, I, I thought, why would he, did he flee like that from Absalom? And, and you know, David, that man who's most of the time, not all the time, most of the time at the ready for battle, but here his own son being an enemy, I, I think his own mind took a while to calculate all that and, and, and set him off. But do you think of those two times, the only times he fled, he always stood valiantly in, in battle. But at the sight of the angel of the Lord, we read that David could only do one thing. We read in verse 16, So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. Is this not a picture of what we read of Christ in chapter 19? Now you may ask, how can we know that the angel of the Lord is indeed Christ? Well, Jonathan Edwards writes, When we read of God's appearing after the fall, from time to time in some visible form or outward symbol of his presence, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it to be the second person of the Trinity. And this is even true when we see an exercise or, or an execution of wrath or judgment. Tertullian wrote on page 194 of seeing Christ in the Old Testament, It was the Son who judged men from the beginning, destroying that lofty tower, the Tower of Babel, and confounding their languages, punishing the whole world with the flood of waters, and raining fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. For he always descended to hold converse with men, from Adam even to the patriarchs and prophets, in visions and dreams and mirrors and dark sentences, always preparing his way from the beginning. Neither was it possible that God who conversed with men upon earth could be in any other than that word which was to be made flesh. So God conversed in that many ways through the Son and even conversed in judgments and wrath. Doesn't Jude also make reference to Christ in executing judgment and deliverance on people of Israel? We are in Exodus. Well, I'm at least I'm in Exodus going through it as when I have my opportunities to preach. And we saw that the I am is indeed our Lord in the burning bush before Moses. And we also have to see the Lord as the one who's bringing these plagues on Egypt. And not only that, bringing judgment on the Hebrews whom he brought out of Egypt but yet did not believe. In the ESV version, we read how to translate the, uh, how they translated the word um, for Lord in Jude 5. Verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus was the one who delivered the people out of Israel and also wrought judgment on those who didn't believe. So you see some translations uh, translate that word curios Lord, but here uh, the uh, ESV translated Jesus to be a bit more um, uh, evident, make it more evident. Now this shows us that Christ in his divine nature was the one who indeed performed judgment on people in the Old Testament, even upon those who were redeemed out of Egypt, yet were unbelieving, he judged. We read in 1 Corinthians 10.5, of those who didn't believe. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It was Christ, the one who did the overthrowing of them in the wilderness. 
Now, when we read of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament as a, a theophany, or, or more specific, a Christophany, which is simply a pre-incarnate, before Christ was incarnate, appearance of Christ, the Lord Jesus bringing blessing to his people, for example, the Lord's blessing to Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 22. We read in verse 15 there that the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not held withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you and multiply, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. So this is the angel of the Lord bringing blessing in this Christophany. But then we also read the angel of the Lord, a Christophany, who brought judgment. And it's, that is consistent agreement with the wrath of Christ revealed in the New Testament as well. Listen to these revealing words in Revelation chapter 14 through 7, uh, excuse me, chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, and the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. From the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. You know, when you think of all the paintings and drawings, artist drawings of, of Christ as the good shepherd or the Lamb of God, you you rarely, I don't know if I've ever seen one portraying the wrath of the Lamb being poured out. You know, we often uh, hear about the weather change in the month of March. What do, what do folks say like that? Uh, say when they want to describe March? Don't they say it comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb? Well, the truth of the matter is the opposite is true of our Savior, isn't it? He came in as a lamb, meek and lowly. But now he reigns as a lion. It's good to be in the fold of the gentle shepherd than to experience the wrath of the lamb. Jesus said in Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The Lord did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now when we look at that, we see that the actual work of Christ was a dividing work, wasn't it? And that sword is what brings that dividing. When we look at the verses in the, uh, as the, as Christ being the judge, we see in Revelation chapter 10, we read of Christ being wrapped in a cloud. And again, look at where this language is used in the Old Testament as well. Last week I, I mentioned, um, some of this in Exodus. We read of God being the pillar of cloud that led the Hebrews out of Egypt. We see several references to that in the book of Exodus. And uh, what I mentioned last week in the thunders, in Revelation 10.3, we read of Christ speaking in the thunders and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, last Sunday in my sermon, I mentioned God speaking to Pharaoh in the thunder of Exodus 9. And these thunders remind us that Christ is executing his divine judgments. And again, this is in harmony with what we read earlier in chapter 19, verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. When you hear those words, any particular hymn come to mind? Abraham Lincoln, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible sword. And his truth keeps marching up. Now we read a number of these Old Testament references to God's judgment, and this is what John borrows from the Old Testament as he describes it in the, uh, the book of Revelation. Listen to these uh, verses in, in, in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 through 6. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the days of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, I, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. You see where John has gone to borrow this language that he writes about in Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 19. It's the very same language. Have you ever heard someone refer to a preacher or a pastor and refer to them, oh, they're a hell and fire and brimstone preacher, or they're a hell, fire and brimstone pastor? And usually that's said more with a negative connotation and positive. Isn't it? If someone says that about a person, it usually comes across as a, a negative thing. Well, maybe it would become more positive if we thought about the one who preached on hell a lot, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some, like the guys I mentioned before, who say that just escaping hell is not a reason to present Christ as Savior. And, of course, the question uh, we want to ask then, well, what does Christ save us from? Is it not you know, fulfilling our, living a fulfilling life, uh, uh, reaching our full potential, having a you know, more improved life? Well, you know, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 declares, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And what is, what is the wrath to come but the judgment of God and the eternal hell? Now, Jesus spoke on hell more than anyone else in Scripture. I don't have the math percentage. I'm going to take Jones uh, uh, as being accurate here. He says about 13% of what Jesus preached on was about hell and judgment. About 13%. We read about, if you look even just to the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, verse 22, we see the Lord say, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the counsel. But whoever says to you, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. We also read it of a, of a sobering warning in verse 29, same chapter. You've heard it said of, to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. 
Think of that language being used. It's better to go without a body part than have losing body and soul thrown into hell. You know, talking with a, a pastor who uh, does uh, some counseling, he, he said it's a, it's a thing you have to have discernment in when counseling a couple that might come to you for help not to just bandage up their immediate problems. For if they're unbelievers, it could be that the Lord is using those very problems to bring them to Christ. So it's very, you know, the uh, uh, William Booth, who started Salvation Army, used to say, we don't want to put a new suit on the man, we want to put a new man in the suit. Well, sometimes Christian uh, benevolence could be real quick to change the suit without doing it in Jesus' name. In other words, the gospel is not the end goal here, a presentation of the gospel. So it's a real careful thing not to just patch up someone's life to improve their lot when God may be using those very things to turn them to him. Also, what did our Lord warn about in Matthew 10, 28? He says, who to fear and why? Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but not kill the body and soul. But rather fear him, excuse me, I didn't, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And also, how did our Lord describe hell in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12? It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now these verses show us that our Lord warned of the judgment to come for those who rejected me. It reminds me of the plagues even that hit uh, Egypt, that Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh to warn them of those judgments to come. Here we see the greater than Moses giving such warnings. In John chapter 1, verse 3, we read, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says a similar thing. It says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So under that category of all things, what is there as well? Hell. Christ created hell. And Christ preached about the horrors of hell because he created it. He knew it better than anyone else. Christ didn't weep over the unbelief of people's unbelief simply because they didn't believe in him, but because he knew of the consequences of their unbelief. We see a picture of this as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. Now there's some issues that are weightier and heavier in Scripture, and some take more, uh, more of our time and attention, but hell is one of those subjects that has eternal significance. Eternal significance, and it should be one that we're mindful of. And we, especially when we consider our neighbors, our loved ones, what ought to bring us to our knees so easy as the thought of a loved one living eternally apart from Christ. Spurgeon wrote of this in chapter, uh, I mean, excuse me, page 196. Spurgeon wrote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Boy, that last line, unwarned and unprayed for. You know, if you want to 
Ask the Lord to open a door to share with them. You spend time putting that person before the Lord. You'll see what kind of doors open up. You know, it's been said before telling someone of Christ, you should tell Christ of that someone. Tell Christ of that someone and see what door the Lord opens up and sharing with them. If, like some do, deny the reality of eternal punishment in hell, then we have to wonder why the incarnation of the Son of God? Why did Christ take on flesh and become the God-man and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? The one who became a curse for us, bore the wrath of God. Why such a wondrous work if there is no hell? To deny hell is to deny the value of the cross, and to deny the value of the cross is to take away from the glory of God. Christ placed himself between God and sinners when he hung on the cross. And the reality is many have rejected that atoning work of Christ, only to be left to their own peril and their own destruction. We read of Simeon when he saw the young Jesus there in Luke chapter 2. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many. This child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against 30 years. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The fall and rising of many. Again, that separating work of Christ. Those who rise are those who trust him as Savior and those who fall are those who face him as judge. In John 5.27, we read that The Father, God, has given him, Christ, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Christ has received authority to bless and to curse, to save and destroy. I remember some years ago when speaking on God's coming judgment, Pastor Fred, I don't know if you remember this or not, I think you've used movies as illustrations maybe two times of the 20-some years uh, I've uh, listened to your preaching. Maybe it's three. I, I can't remember more than that. But I remember you using an illustration of a scene from Saving Private Ryan. And it was in the movie, uh, it was a small band of American troops were trying to hold a, a bridge in a, in a small uh, French town, I believe. And uh, they're just about overrun by the Germans when all of a sudden the Army, Corps, uh, Army Air Corps shows up. It's called the Air Corps back then. It became the Air Force in '47, I believe. But the Army Air Corps showed up and they dropped uh, uh, bombs. They were able to repel the uh, German armies. And the showing the, the appearance of those airplanes was good news for one group and bad news for another group. Good news for the American soldiers whose lives were being spared and bad news on the German soldiers. Now, conversely, Christ is good news to those who believe his doctrine, love him, War against his enemies, the devil, and the world, and the flesh, and obey his commandments. And those who see it as good news, those who, uh, again, there's a list with scriptural references in Joan's book here, but those who despise the kingdom of God, refuse God's grace, spurn God's benefits, churns God's grace into wantonness, and do not abide in him and act wickedly. So you see good news in one group, bad news in the others. Now, why do believers take such comfort in Christ, even though he is a judge? Because for the believer, he is also what else? He's their savior, their brother, their friend, their high priest, 
the one who died for their sins. And Christ will return to take them to a place that he's prepared for them. If it were not so, Jesus would not have told us so. Therefore, there will come a day when the angels of God will bring all people, the just and the unjust, to the perfect judge of all things who determines the eternal abode of every man, woman, and child. Psalm 103.3 reads, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And Jones writes that the wicked will stand before God in judgment, but they won't be able to stand in judgment. Again, Romans 14.10 tells us, We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For the one who trusts Christ, the one who overcame the death and grave, he is the overcomer in whom we are in. We read in Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Remember when back in the chapter of Christ's intercession, Christ speaking our name before the Father? Remember what Robert Murray McShane said about that? What, how that just gives him the, the strength and the confidence and comfort. And what a comfort to know because we are the work of Christ. God has prepared us because, excuse me, because of the work of Christ, God has prepared us to walk in those good works that were prepared for the elect before the foundation of the world. This is the way of the believer, the road of good works, as it were, that they travel on. As the reformers have stated before, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, our works don't save us, but our works are an indicator we are saved. And our works will be judged. 1 Corinthians 3.13 reads, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Such warnings in Scripture ought not to cause a believer to lose assurance of salvation, for every believer, everyone who clings to Christ as Savior is the blessed man in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Blessed is the man whom Christ declares forgiven. That's the assurance for the believer. But for the works done in Christ being judged, we have the warnings on how to walk our walk. Those warnings are given to us. In Ephesians 5, verses 13 through 15, we read, But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Walk in wisdom. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. This is the walk he has called us to. You know, we're all familiar, I think, with that sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do you know that some of the men I mentioned previously, one in that line of thinking, actually wrote a book called God in the Hand of Angry Sinners? Totally turning around those words. God in the Hand of Angry Sinners. And he does so because, again, the idea of, of reconciling the wrath of God with the love of God is something they just don't allow uh, scripture do. Instead, they try to figure out in their own minds. And um, I think it's the author of that book says that Christians overemphasize the wrath of God. And I have to wonder, 
Do we overemphasize the wrath of God? I would say, in my own life, if I were to say the way that I overemphasize or underemphasize, I probably would fall to the underemphasizing it. And the truth be told, it, it could be part of the lethargy sometimes, or, or laziness, or whatever that I find in my And I'm sure you can identify that with as well. Jones writes that maybe there needs to be a companion book to Edward's book titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Christ. Seeing who Christ is, even as in the anger of Christ. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Very true. But the Bible also tells us that God, through Christ, will execute judgment upon all those who do not have Christ, nor repent of their sins. Who is Jesus? Jesus asked, who do, people, who do you say that I am? Now, as we are growing in knowing Christ, as we desire to know Christ, as we pray to that end to know him more and better, let us seriously consider the wrath of Christ as well, because in doing so, we will rejoice all the more in the God, our Savior, who has saved us from the wrath to come. Would you pray with me, dear ones? Our Father in heaven, when we consider that while we got sinners, Christ died for us, there was no obligation for you to send Christ, nor for Christ to voluntarily come, to propitiate, to become that Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Father, may we consider the wrath of Christ, our Lord and Savior, for he indeed saved us from that wrath. Father, may those thoughts be with us today, this evening, future days, that we always walk with a bounce in our step of gratefulness to the one who's redeemed us. We commit this evening, this rest of the remainder of this week, we commit it to you, Lord, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.